Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hi, good morning, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be back at Bloxham Festival. Thank you for inviting me. Um, my name is Paul Edmondson. I'm head of research for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford-upon-Avon. And I'm joined by the distinguished Catherine Cusack and Finbar Lynch, who, of course, are a part of that great Cusack dynasty. And it gives me enormous pleasure that you're taking part in this uh, talk, Shakespeare's Dimensions of Love. They're going to be reading the quotations from the plays and the sonnets. um, And hopefully there'll be time for some questions and reactions at the end. Shakespeare is a great poet and playwright of love. He writes about and bodies forth love's many forms. If this were the first in a series of lectures entitled Shakespeare and Love, then I would probably wish to talk about Shakespeare and the love of one's children, the love of king and country, of power, of one's family and friends, of the natural world, of oneself, and Shakespeare's expressions of eternal love. But for the next few moments, I'm going to be talking about romantic love. That is, the love of two people of either sex for each other. But I'm also going to include two examples of non-romantic, unconditionally loyal, devoted love. And my first section is called, The More I Give to Thee, The More I Have. Romeo and Juliet speaks to anyone who has dared to love across a divide. The play's romance is set against the violence of Verona's streets between two feuding families, the Capulets and the Montagues. Juliet Capulet and Romeo Montague have fallen in love at first sight with each other at the Capulets' ball, which Romeo and his friends decided to gate-crash. Their famous balcony scene takes place on a knife's edge. If they do see thee, they will murder thee, says Juliet. Their eloquence when speaking together for around 150 lines is wrapped up in the romance of daring and escape. I have knight's cloak to hide me from their eyes, says Romeo. We listen as they find a way of speaking which we have not heard until this point. Although their dialogue resonates with references to Elizabethan culture and mentions falconry, schoolboys and their books, and merchandise from the new world, a sense of timelessness is achieved because the lovers see themselves in the context of eternity. Juliet says, My bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love as deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite. The scene is made powerful by its impassioned lyricism. When Romeo hears Juliet repeating his name and then calling back at him, we hear... It is my soul that calls upon my name, 
How silver sweet sound lovers' tongues by night, like softest music to attending ears. His language, rich with sibilant sounds, is close to music. Those three lines you've just heard illustrate how Shakespeare often universalizes personal emotion. Romeo's soul, Juliet, calls out his name and leads him into a meditation of two lines about the musicality of all lovers' tongues, voices, being like music in the night. In performance, Shakespeare's dramatic truthfulness can, in part, be heard in the musicality of his language, which enriches the dialogue and makes it the dramatic equivalent of an operatic aria. Lady, by yonder blessed moon I vow that tips with silver all these fruit tree tops. I'll swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon, that monthly changes in her circled orb, lest that thy love prove likewise variable. What shall I swear by? Do not swear at all. Or if thou wilt, swear by thy gracious self, which is the god of my idolatry, and I'll believe thee. If my heart's dear love... Well, do not swear. Although I joy in thee, I have no joy of this contract tonight. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning which doth cease to be, ere one can say it lightens. Sweet, good night. This bud of love by summer's ripening breath may prove a beauteous flower when next we meet. Good night, good night. As sweet repose and rest come to thy heart as that within my breast. Oh, wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? What satisfaction canst thou have tonight? The exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. I gave thee mine before thou didst request it, and yet I would it were to give again. Wouldst thou withdraw it? For what purpose, love? But to be frank, and give it thee again. And yet I wish but for the thing I have. My bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love as deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have for both are infinite. The balcony itself is, of course, a great catalyst for the lovers to make poetry. Without the physical separation, there'd be no need for them to speak like this. A professor of Shakespeare studies sent me a postcard years ago saying that he'd just seen a production of Romeo and Juliet at the Manchester Royal Exchange, performed by an enthusiastic young cast without a balcony he wrote, it made me realise what a good form of contraception a balcony usually is. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, for all its romance, also depicts a tough-edged sexuality. Shakespeare changes Juliet's age from the source story, making her only 13, the same age as his own daughter Susanna at the time he wrote the play. While she is waiting for Romeo on their wedding night, Juliet speaks an excited soliloquy. She longs for the coming of gentle, loving, black-browed night, so that she and her new husband Romeo can consummate their secret marriage and enjoy sex. Give me my Romeo and when I shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars. Die was slang for the experience of orgasm, and perhaps Shakespeare's imagery here is his way of describing what orgasm feels like. It's to be cut up into little stars 
and to experience a moment of infinity. With love and sex, death also becomes part of the romance. Queen Cleopatra of Egypt wants to die because her lover Antony has killed himself out of love for her, as well as shame for himself. As she prepares for her suicide, she recalls their lovemaking. His delights were dolphin-like. They showed his back above the element they lived in. One interpretation of her abiding memories, and I had this from someone who'd played Cleopatra, is that she's recalling the movement of his back and buttocks moving and leaping like a dolphin as he thrusts into her. A few moments later, just before she allows the poisonous asp to bite her, she says, husband, I come. As Juliet called for the coming on of night, so Cleopatra calls for the coming of her husband, the darkness of death and sex all at the same time. Cleopatra well understands that the stroke of death is as a lover's pinch, which hurts and is desired. The tragedies of Antony and Cleopatra and Romeo and Juliet are what Richard Wagner called Liebestod, love-death narratives. The lovers have no choice but to take their lovemaking and their sexual experience to their graves, even though we know they would give everything for just one more night together. This next section is entitled, Tie Up My Lover's Tongue, Bring Him Silently. Shakespeare delights in comic lovemaking. One of the most abiding of all stage pictures is surely Titania, the queen of the fairies, making love to the simple, homely Nick Bottom, who has had a spell cast on him to give him a donkey's head in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Shakespeare combines sentiment, humour and lyricism with sex. Come, wait upon him, lead him to my bower. The moon, methinks, looks with a watery eye, and when she weeps, weeps every little flower, lamenting some enforced chastity. Tie up my love's tongue, bring him silently. These lines end the scene and in some productions lead to a great procession as the attendant fairies lead Bottom off the stage to the place of sex. Peter Brook famously had Mendelssohn's wedding march played at that point. Did anyone see the Brook production? At the back, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. That's right, isn't it, that moment? Was it, was it just before the interval as well? Yeah. When we see this... When we next see this unlikely couple, performance often presents Bottom as exhausted with lovemaking, whilst Titania is ready for more. Shakespeare's own version of Botticelli's great painting, Venus and Mars. Oh, how I love thee, how I dote on thee, says the Queen of the Fairies, as her donkey man falls asleep in her arms. Henry V, ends with the wooing of Catherine, Princess of France, by King Henry. Their 178-lined courtship might even be regarded as a play in miniature. It reads and plays affectionately, comically. 
Is it possible that I should love the enemy of France? No. It is not possible you should love the enemy uh, of France, Kate, but in loving me, you should love the king of France, a friend of France, for I love France so well that I will not part with a village of it. I will have it all mine, and Kate, when France is mine and I'm yours, then yours is France and you are mine. I cannot tell what is that. <laughs> no, Kate? I will tell thee in French, which I am sure will hang upon my tongue like a new married wife about her husband's neck, hardly to be shook off. Je, quand suis le possesseur de France, et quand vous avez le possession de moi, let me see, what then? Saint Denis be my speed. Donc votre est France, et vous êtes mien. It is as easy for me, Kate, to conquer the kingdom as to speak so much more French. I shall never move thee in French unless it be to laugh at me. Sauf votre honneur, le français que vous parlez, il est meilleur que l'anglais lequel je parle. No, Kate. <laughs> Faith, it's not, Kate. But thy speaking of my tongue, and I thine, most truly falsely, must needs be granted to be much at one. But, Kate... Dost thou understand thus much English? Canst thou love me? I cannot tell. <laughs> Catherine does accept the king, eventually. For all of its apparent charm, their courtship is also a reminder of the war waged by Henry on her kingdom, the ravaging of its countryside, and the deaths of 10,000 Frenchmen. Having taken her country through an illegal foreign invasion, the king now takes the French princess as his queen. In Much Ado About Nothing, Shakespeare strikes a definitely lighter note and portrays a flirtatious romantic love in the merry war of words between the soldier Benedict and Beatrice, who has been waiting his return. She's missed her sparring partner. I wonder that you will still be talking, Signor Benedict. Nobody marks you. What, my dear Lady Disdain, are you yet living? Is it possible Disdain should die while she has such meat food to feed it as Signor Benedict? Courtesy itself must convert to Disdain if you come in her presence. Then is courtesy a turncoat. But it is certain I am loved of all ladies, only you excepted. And I would I could find it in my heart that I had not a hard heart, for truly I love none. A dear happiness to women. They would else have been troubled with a pernicious suitor. I thank God, and my cold blood, I am of your humour for that. I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. God keep your ladyship still in that mind, so some gentleman or other shall scape a predestinate scratched face. Scratching could not make it worse into such a face as yours were. Well, you are a rare parrot teacher. A bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. I would my horse had the speed of your tongue, and so good a continuer. But keep your way, a God's name I have done. You always end with a jade's trick. I know you of old. We feel as we watch it, with the onstage audience, the community of Messina, that this kind of encounter has all happened before and it will happen again. A friend of mine took her granddaughter, aged seven at the time, to see a production. When my friend asked her grandchild at the interval if she were enjoying it, the reply came, 
that man and woman who are shouting at each other, Grandma, are they going to get married? <laughs> Why do you ask that? Because, replied the granddaughter, sometimes when people shout at each other like that, they end up getting married. <laughs> and that is surely one of the main pleasures of this play. These misfits with, the, with apparently defended hearts, though, as it turns out, defended only because vulnerable, are tricked into overhearing how much they have loved each other and finally talk and argue their way into marriage and, indeed, write sonnets along the way. This next section is called For Thee and For Myself No Quiet Find. Shakespeare made himself the master of the sonnet form. He made it his own. 154 of his sonnets were published in 1609. The latest scholarship suggests that he wrote sonnets over a long period of time, perhaps as much as 30 years or so. And when looked at closely, they show Shakespeare to be addressing many different people and using the form, of all, and using the form for all sorts of purposes and occasions. Within his sonnets, we find some of the finest and most memorable articulations of love's many-moodedness in the English language. Intense articulations of, among other emotions, romance, commitment, and anxiety. So long as men can breathe, our eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Sonnet 18. There is mourning for lost love. And weep afresh love's long since cancelled woe. Sonnet 30. There is longing for love. All days are nights to see till I see thee. Sonnet 43. There is cynicism about love. So true a fool is love. Sonnet 57. There is love's sickness. My love was my decay. Sonnet 80. Love brings youthfulness. Love is a babe. Sonnet 115. And there is a philosophical sense of absolutism in Love's love. not time's fool. Sonnet 116. 123 sonnets are directed towards individuals. Six sonnets are addressed to abstract concepts. 25 present themselves as meditations rather like miniature soliloquies. Of, of these 154 sonnets, 10 are addressed to women, 26 addressed to men, one to a boy, and 86 could be addressed to either sex. In short, most of Shakespeare's sonnets remain open about their, about their directions of desire. Sonnet 27 conveys the restless, obsessive nature of love and could be addressed to a male or a female. Weary with toil, I haste me to my bed. The deer repose for limbs with travail tired. But then begins a journey in my head to work my mind when body's work's expired. For then my thoughts, from far where I abide, intend a zealous pilgrimage to thee, and keep my drooping eyelids open wide, 
looking on darkness which the blind do see, save that my soul's imaginary sight presents thy shadow to my sightless view, which like a jewel hung in ghastly night makes black night beauteous and her old face new. Lo, thus by day my limbs, by night my mind, for thee and for myself no quiet find. In contrast is sonnet 138, which is about a woman and perhaps suggests a long-established relationship, even an open-style marriage. When my love swears that she is made of truth, I do believe her, though I know she lies, that she might think me some untutored youth, unlearned in the world's false subtleties, thus vainly thinking that she thinks me young, although she knows my days are past the best, simply I credit her false speaking tongue. On both sides thus is simple truth suppressed. But, but wherefore says she not she is unjust? And wherefore say not I that I am old? Oh, love's best habit is in seeming trust, and age in love loves not to have years told. Therefore I lie with her and she with me. And in our faults, by lies, we flattered be. In contrast again is Sonnet 144, which is a poem about a bisexual, triangular relationship. This poem is not addressed to anyone. Instead, it's a personal meditation, a dramatization in miniature. Two loves I have of comfort and despair which like two spirits do suggest me still. The better angel is a man right fair, the worser spirit a woman colored ill. To win me soon to hell my female evil tempteth my better angel from my side and would corrupt my saint to be a devil, wooing his purity with her foul pride. And whether that my angel be turned fiend Suspect I may, yet not directly tell, but being both from me, both to each friend, I guess one angel in another's hell. Yet this shall I ne'er know, but live in doubt, till my bad angel fire my good one out. In that couplet we've just heard, Shakespeare imagines his two loves having sex with each other, and his mistress giving his male lover venereal disease. I guess one angel in another's hell, yet this shall I ne'er know but live in doubt, till my bad angel fire my good one out. Hell, unfortunately, was Renaissance slang for vagina. This particular sonnet shows a confessional side to Shakespeare, negotiating his own sexual and romantic feelings feelings which include both comfort and despair. This sonnet also suggests that Shakespeare's own sexuality was fully felt in relationship with both men and women. This next section is called Say How I Loved You. 
bisexual love ripples through the canon. Antonio for Sebastian and Duke Orsino for his page boy, Viola in disguise as Cesario in Twelfth Night or What You Will, and Achilles and Patroclus who enjoy sex in their tent while the Trojan War rages around them, in Troilus and Cressida. Listen to this exchange between Antonio Bassanio and the disguised Portia, wife to Bassanio, in The Merchant of Venice. Antonio, who forfeited on a bond for which he was standing as security for Bassanio, is preparing to sacrifice himself by allowing Shylock to cut out a pound of his flesh. I am armed and well prepared. Give me your hand, Bassanio. Fare you well. Grieve not that I am fallen to this for you. For herein fortune shows herself more kind than is her custom. It is still her use to let the wretched man outlive his wealth, to view with hollow eye and wrinkled brow an age of poverty, from which lingering penance of such misery doth she cut me off. Commend me to your honorable wife. Tell her the process of Antonio's end. Say how I loved you. Speak me fair in death. And when the tale is told, bid her be judge whether Bassanio had not once a love. Repent but you that you shall lose your friend. And he repents not that he pays your debt. For if the Jew do cut but deep enough, I'll pay it instantly. Antonio, I am married to a wife which is as dear to me as life itself. But life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. I would lose all. I sacrifice them all here to this devil to deliver you. Your wife would give you little thanks for that if she were by to hear you make the offer. And of course she is in disguise speaking those words. Your wife would give you little thanks for that. As You Like It is the play which contains the most marriages at the end. Touchstone and Audrey, Silvius and Phoebe, Celia and Oliver, and Rosalind and Orlando. The god of marriage himself, Hymen, appears on stage finally to bring about these pairings. But it's the journey towards these marriages, rather than the marriages themselves, that the audience is asked to enjoy. The main focus of our attention is watching the hero, Orlando, fall in love with another young man, Ganymede, his beloved Rosalind, in disguise. In the presence of Rosalind's cousin Celia, they even enact a betrothal rite known as hand-fasting. The moment is the closest Shakespeare comes to portraying what we would now recognise as a same-sex marriage. When Rosalind finally becomes Orlando's wife, he, she, and we all know that he is so deeply in love with her person that it matters not a jot whether she's male or female. While disguised, she has been able to see his undefended heart open to the possibility of bisexual love. She has seen him fall for another man who happens to be herself. In what would become known as Shakespeare's final play, The Two Noble Kinsmen, which he co-authored with John Fletcher, 
the nobleman Palamon and Arcite see themselves as one another's wife, ever begetting new births of love. We are father, friends, acquaintance. We are in one another families. Palamon asks, Is there record of any two that loved better than we do, Arcite? And a few seconds later, their masculine love will turn to rivalry for Queen Hippolyta's sister, Emilia, whom they see from their prison window. One interpretation might see Emilia's entrance as ruining everything. But a couple of scenes earlier, we've heard Emilia herself describe her own female-female love for Flavina, who has died. She recalls the plucking of twin flowers and the placing of them between Flavina's breasts. You talk of Pyrrhus and Theseus' love. Theirs has more ground, is more maturely seasoned, more buckled with strong judgment and their needs, the one of the other may be said to water their intertangled roots of love, but I, and she I sigh and spoke of, were things innocent, loved, for we did, and like the elements that know not what nor why, yet do affect rare issues by their operants, our souls did so to one another. What she liked was then of me approved, what not condemned, no more arraignment. The flower that I would pluck and put between my breasts, oh then but beginning to swell about the blossom, she would long till she had such another and commit it to the like innocent cradle where phoenix-like they died in perfume. On my head, no toy, but was her pattern, her affections pretty, Though happily her careless wear, I followed for my most serious decking. Had mine ear stolen some new air, or at adventure hummed one from musical coinage, why it was a note whereon her spirits would sojourn, rather dwell on, and sing it in her slumbers. This rehearsal has this end, that the true love between maid and maid may be more than in sex individual. Amelia then goes on to say that she will never love a man. Her feelings and perspective will change when the nobleman, Palamon and Arcite, start to war for her affections. And I think that's fascinating, those episodes that I've just invited us to think about from um, As You Like It and The Merchant of Venice and The Two Noble Kinsmen, because they truly complicate any cliché we might go to Shakespeare with in looking for, for love and models of love. And in those words, which are, are difficult to read and, and difficult to understand in that longish speech by, by Amelia, this is Shakespeare's late style, in which is, is contorted uh, and the syntax is complicated and he's reaching for expressions that he hasn't articulated thus far in his career as a playwright. And he's using, I think, that contorted expression, that difficulty of articulation for Amelia to say, I'm trying to be as honest as I can be about my feelings. It's difficult to talk about, but this is how I felt. And this was how Flavina behaved towards me. And I know I loved her. So there's a closeness uh, of relationship which is being reached for through a difficulty 
of, of language and articulation. This final section is called Set Your Heart at Rest. For all of Shakespeare's depictions of love's restlessness and many-sidedness, he also presents loyalty in love. The phrase, set your heart at rest, rings with constancy, immovability, and it comes from Titania's beautiful and lyrical speech in A Midsummer Night's Dream when she recalls her devoted friendship with a mortal, the mother of the Indian boy. Set your heart at rest. The fairyland buys not the child of me. His mother was a votress of my order, and in the spiced Indian air by night, full often hath she gossiped by my side, and sat with me on Neptune's yellow sands, marking the embarked traders on the flood, when we have laughed to see the sails conceive and grow big-bellied with the wanton wind, which she, with pretty and with swimming gait, following her womb then rich with my young squire, would imitate and sail upon the land to fetch me trifles and return again, as from a voyage rich with merchandise. But she, being mortal, of that boy did die, and for her sake do I rear up her boy, and for her sake I will not part with him. I love the movement in that speech, the way that Titania is, is, mem is remembering the, the sea itself, Neptune's yellow sands, the trade as the ships that are passing on the sea, and then this woman, this pregnant woman on the beach, and the sails of the ship being as big-bellied as she is in the memory and the movement, and the, the richness of sight and sound, and then she's helping um, uh, Titania to, to, uh, the sailor, to, to fetch her trifles and return again as from a rich voyage and there's, there's her mortality embedded in that memory as well in that, that movement and that's why she's not going to part with Indian boys certainly not for Oberon who wants him it's a moving speech about female friendship and support during pregnancy in its dramatic context it also serves to emphasise why Titania will not part with that Indian boy, her adopted son, even though Oberon demands him back. That's why they're ill-met by moonlight. The play's events will eventually betray Titania's friendship with the Indian boy's mother, because Oberon will succeed in taking him from her by casting the spell on her and making her fall in love with Bottom, and then... When she has the spell removed, he also takes the Indian boy as well. Finally, in what is likely to be Shakespeare's first sole-authored play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, romantic love and the loyalty of male-male friendship between the gentlemen Valentine and Proteus are presented as inconsistent, exploitable, selfish and wounding. In comic but extremely real contrast, Shakespeare presents Proteus's servant, Lance, and his dog, Crab. The action of the play requires that an actual dog plays the part of Crab. And in some productions, 
this relationship between one man and his dog is the most loyal and genuinely affectionate of all, here's Lance's soliloquy about taking the humiliating blame for something that Crab himself has done. When a man's servant shall play the cur with him, look you, it goes hard. One that I brought up with a puppy, one that I saved from drowning when three or four of his blind brothers and sisters went to it, I have taught him, even as one would say precisely, thus I would teach a dog. I was sent to deliver him as a present to Mistress Sylvia from my master, and I came no sooner into the dining chamber, but he steps me to her trencher and steals her capon's leg. Oh, tis a foul thing when a cur cannot keep himself in all companies. I would, have one such, uh, I would have, as one should say, one that takes it upon him to be a dog indeed, to be, as it were, a dog at all things. If I had not more wit than he, to take a fault upon me that he did, I think verily he'd been hanged for it. Sure as I live, he'd have suffered for it. You shall judge." He thrusts me himself into the company of three or four gentlemen-like dogs under the Duke's table. He had not been there, bless the mark, a pissing while, but all the chamber smelt him. <laughs> out with the dog, says one. What cur is that, says another. Whip him out, says the third. Hang him up, says the Duke. I, having been acquainted with the smell before, knew it was crab, and goes me to the fellow that whips the dogs. Friend, quoth I, you mean to whip the dog? Aye, marry do I, quoth he. You do him the more wrong, quoth I. Twas I did the thing you <laughs> was of. He makes me no more ado, but he whips me out of the chamber. How many masters would do this for his servant? Nay, I'll be sworn, I have sat in the stocks for puddings he had stolen, otherwise he had been executed. I've stood on the pillory for geese he had killed, otherwise he'd have suffered for it. <laughs> yes, lovely, lovely. Thank you. I, I love the uncompromising physicality and particularity of that description. The, the puddings that he's also remembering that Crab has stolen. Uh, the smell of, 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 of whatever, of, of, the, of, of the dogs, wee-wee, uh, um, in the chamber. Um, and the, the reactions of the people present. Um, so you have baked into that a wonderful loyalty of, of, uh, of master and servant. This is the play that towards the end, Valentine, um, Pro Proteus gives Sylvia to Valentine, who's just attempted to rape her. And one goes back to the observation by Arthur Quillacooch, who says, by this point in the play, there are no gentlemen in Verona. <laughs> And that's why um, in productions, you know, quite sometimes Crab and, and Lance come on ag again at the end. And we're just reminded that, you know, loyalty and love are possible, but it's between uh, a, a human and an animal. So, and, and also the uncompromising physicality of, of the actual dog who's playing Crab, who almost can't put a foot wrong in productions unless it, unless it never stops barking, which is sometimes a problem. The crabs we have seen. <laughs> so in exploring Shakespeare's depictions of love's many-sidedness, I've come more and more to appreciate his ability to body forth male and female identities and emotions. 
Samuel Taylor Coleridge identified and praised Shakespeare for his androgynous mind. Virginia Woolf, alluding to Coleridge in A Room of One's Own, referred to Shakespeare's man-womanly mind. It's a moment when she recalls a man and a woman getting out of a taxi, and then the taxi itself becomes a sort of metaphor for a brain, and she thinks of the male and female aspects of the brain, and it's, ah, oh, Shakespeare's mind, an androgynous mind, as Coleridge said, a man-womanly mind, which enabled him to, to create as he did. And to think about Shakespeare and love, therefore, to return to the plays and poems in order to find and discuss his handling of it is to recognize that love is a golden seam running through his works. His dramatic and poetic articulations of love prove that he is an abundantly generous writer who seeks to present human imperfections and vulnerabilities. In doing so, Shakespeare succeeds in presenting us with nothing less than the heart of love itself as a physical and emotional dramatic reality. Thank you for listening. And thank you. Thank you. And we have some time for questions and discussion, which I, I'm looking forward to. So please, if you have a, a question or a point or reaction you'd like to articulate, please do. Yes, please. Oh, do you want a microphone? Yeah. Thank you very much. I find it absolutely fascinating but I spent last week at the General Synod of the Church of England. I just wish I had the opportunity to invite you to talk to all of them. Any time you like. <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to go in and sock it to the General Synod. I really would. I really would. Especially in light of the House of Bishops' inept pronouncement a few weeks ago, which three years ago would have really upset me. And actually, it just seems ludicrous now. It seems so out of step with where um, our, our, our human understanding is. And that's before you get to religion. Thank you. Anne Hathaway is, of course, a known figure. But what do we know of Shakespeare's own personal experiences of love I wonder what the scholarship is telling us, or the historical studies is. Well, you know, I've been doing I, I've been doing a lot of work um, in collaboration with um, Professor Sir Stanley Wells on the sonnets recently, and there is a new edition of the sonnets which we've been preparing for Cambridge University Press, which is coming out in September. And what we've done there is we've rearranged the sonnets into chronological order so far as scholarship allows us to, because for many, many years, scholars have agreed that the order in which they're printed in 1609 is not the order in which he wrote them. And the order in which they're printed in 1609 has, has, has had attached to it a narrative, a biographical narrative. And by, by rearranging the sonnets, we've uncoupled that narrative 
It's no, it's no, it was never there in the first place. It's what people have been bringing to the sonnet. It's not actually there in the poems. Um, and they don't tell a story. And along that chronological um, span, we've put in the sonnets from the plays at the various relevant points, because Shakespeare puts sonnets as um, prologues and epilogues, and Romeo and Juliet share a sonnet, and the Lords in Love's Labour's Lost try to write sonnets. They do write sonnets. So that's the idea of, what, of the project. Doing that has made me realise more and more that many, not all, but many of Shakespeare's sonnets are personal poems. Because, you know, why do, poet, why do poets write? Why has ever a poet picked up a pen and written? It's in order to speak the truth. Look into your heart and write, says Sir Philip Sidney in Shakespeare's period. And for too long, although ironically, the sonnets have been used to tell the story of Shakespeare's life, it's been, it's been locked into a particular version of that life. Actually, if you just see them as individual poems, which many of which are personally inflected, then that makes them much more exciting and much richer as, as a body of work. You ask about Shakespeare's personal love life. We know very little about it. What, 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 what do we know? What's, what's the evidence? He married Anne Hathaway much too young. He was 18. She was 26. It scuppered his chances, therefore, of leading an ordinary professional um, apprenticed life. You couldn't be married and continue as an apprentice. So the lives around him of his peer group in Stratford-upon-Avon, who were going off to become you know, tradesmen, craftsmen, and, and being attached to one of the guilds, was denied Shakespeare. So he had to do something else with his life. And presumably, he was already um, much excited by literature and drama from his grammar school education and so on. And, and that leads him to London to try his hand at writing and acting. While he's in London, the one anecdote which survives about Shakespeare's personal life is of, is of, have, is of him having sex with um, a prostitute. And this comes from the diary of John Manningham, who was um, uh, a student at the Middle Temple, where Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night was performed in 1602. And Manningham saw that performance and writes about it. And he leaves us the anecdote in his diaries, which was discovered in the 19th century, that um, it goes something like this. Upon a time when Richard Burbage played Richard III, there was um, a woman grew so in liking with him that she appointed him to come to see her after the performance and use the name Richard III. Shakespeare, overhearing the assignation, got there beforehand, and when message was sent that Richard III was at the door, Shakespeare replied, tell him that William the Conqueror came before Richard III. <laughs> that is the one anecdote about Shakespeare's personal life, and it's, it's, it's about of, 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 of marital inf in, in, infidelity with you know, sex outside, outside marriage. Um, so, you know, what else might we say? Well, the rest is reasonable conjecture and... Um, uh, assumption. So he buys a big house in the centre of Stratford, new place in 1597, for his family. And he never owns property in London until what turned out to, to be towards the end of his life. And even then it was a sort of buy-to-let um, uh, investment. So he's got this big house in Stratford. He's only ever an intermittent lodger in London. Um, and this has allowed... Shakespeare biography in the last decade or so to understand Shakespeare more and more as a commuter between 
Stratford and London, who's, you know, who's Stratford is important to him. His, his family and his wife are there, but he's got his working life in London as well. And sometimes he's on tour, possibly, when the theatres are closed. Um, but, you know, you, you'd never have a house like New Place with between 20 and 30 rooms if you never spent any time there or intended to. And, and then you think, well, he bought it because he wanted to become a full-time writer. He didn't want to be bothered with going on tour with his theatre company. Yes, he'd go to uh, the performances before Elizabeth I and James I over Christmas because that's what the companies had to do. They were, the, as it were, the Royal Shakespeare Company of their time. Um, and that's interesting, too, when you start to think about Shakespeare's negotiations between uh, his professional life and his, and his personal life. So it's a very ongoing and open question that you've asked, um, and it, it yields a lot of, I hope, uh, interesting responses. More questions or thoughts, please. Oh, can you comment about his family, his two, his two daughters and his son, and that, the film we saw about that? And did, well, yes. how, how authentic is that, the film? So, so I think you're thinking of um, All is True, the Kenneth Branagh film. Did anyone see that film? Yeah, I, I worked on it a little. Um, Ken Branagh got in touch with the Birthplace Trust and wanted to visit... Um, the Shakespeare houses, and I showed him around, and then he asked me to read the script for him and to comment on it, which I was happy to do. Um, and I mean, the, the title is is jokey. All is true, um, in in at least two senses. First, because it's the title of a Shakespeare play, which we now know as Henry VIII, but in Shakespeare's time was known as All is True, which he co-authored with John Fletcher. Um, and the historical aspects of that play are not all true, although they the play itself declares it to be. So Shakespeare's using, uh, Branagh is using Shakespeare's own joke, if you like, that all is true, slightly ironic, and presenting a biofiction um, of, of, of Shakespeare's life and his family. It's a love, I think it's a lovely film. Um, the, the central story is that Shakespeare is mourning the death of his son Hamnet, who died aged 11, and that that is grief that he's carrying with him because he's been so uh, often in London, he's not had time to mourn properly. Um, and he, he does that in, in Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, his two daughters married, so Hamlet dies m much too young, and his two daughters uh, married. Susanna marries a local physician called John Hall, on whom I've been doing quite a lot of work recently. Um, and... Uh, they're married for, for many years. They have, they have one, one daughter, Elizabeth, the only grandchild that Shakespeare knew. Judith lives until the ripe old age of, of 61. Um, and she... Um, sorry, 70. She's 70 when she dies. She was born in 1585, and she dies in, in 1661. Yeah. Well, how old is that? So... Yeah, 75, yeah. She's old as that? 50, so Chris baptised on 2nd of February, 1585, and she dies in 1661. Yeah. Anyway, so um, she marries, and apparently, we, as far as I know, that was, that, you know, it was a, long, a long marriage. Her husband predeceases her. But I, I find it touching that her first child, with whom she was pregnant when she attended her father's funeral, she named Shakespeare. So the first name of their first child was Shakespeare, so that was Shakespeare Quiney. And then they had two more children, and they all died in infancy. 
They all died in him. Otherwise, you know, the Shakespeare name through through the Quiney family would have would have continued with Shakespeare Quiney, um, and then the Hart family, his sister's family, who lived in what's um, part of the birthplace now um, until the early 1800s, um, they have a tradition of naming their male offspring Shakespeare. Um, and when George Virtue, the famous engraver, visited Stratford and wanted to draw a new place, um, which was very different by the time he, he saw it. It wasn't the new place that Shakespeare had known, but he talked to the great-great-nephew of, of Shakespeare, who was called Shakespeare Hart, uh, and Shakespeare Hart um, helped him to know what new place had been like, because Shakespeare Hart had remembered it when he was a boy. Yeah. It's very fascinating. Um, yeah, any more? One time for one more question, maybe. How far does um, how far are all the ambiguities that you've been, you know, very well illustrating, um, paralleled by understanding of it and acceptance of it in Shakespeare's own society, or is he being rather radical? I actually don't think he's been that radical. I mean, the irony is, it seems radical to us because I think, you know, obviously, from Shakespeare's time, um, we've inherited prohibition in our culture. Um, against uh, non-heterosexual expressions of love. Um, and I think in Shakespeare's time, although there were laws, there was um, an anti-buggery law established by Henry VIII that was, that was seldom enacted um, only on cases of violent crime against children, for example, or with animals. There has been a lot of research into this, and it seems that Shakespeare's time itself was extremely um, tolerant and, and you know, open to what we would now consider non-traditional forms of, of, uh, of, of, of love making. Um, so it's, it's perhaps our own cultural anxiety that we've inherited from our more immediate ancestors that have, have, have created this, this block, this perception. Good. So I'd like to um, join you in thanking Catherine and Finvar very much indeed. And thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.